let's spend some time uh, reflecting upon the reason for our thanksgiving. And let's go to Psalm 100, please. Psalm 100. Now, if uh, you have been here before on a Thanksgiving Eve service, you're going to say, Pastor, weren't you in Psalm 100 last time? Probably. Um, Most of the time, I am in Psalm 100 during the Thanksgiving season. I love this psalm. I think it's a, a rich psalm. We've sometimes do the whole psalm in one night, and sometimes I do pieces and parts of it in a night as well. Uh, but follow along with me as I read Psalm 100, uh, all five verses, and our emphasis will tonight be on verse 5. It's a psalm of praise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. That's a beautiful psalm. Maybe you memorized it. I remember memorizing this many, many years ago. And I do often go to it at Thanksgiving time, probably because of a simple word in the middle of verse 4, where it says, to enter his gates with Thanksgiving. I said, well, there it is, Thanksgiving psalm. Uh, But for such a short little psalm, as you can see, only five little verses long, it is so rich in theological expressions about our God. Generally, we focus on on the parts of this, and, and I'm just going to do something with you for a few minutes here to give you a big view of that psalm before we focus in closely on the one verse. But uh, there are seven things you're called to do, by the way, in this psalm. Make a joyful noise. We did that. Some better than others, but we did that. Serve the Lord. We're told to do that. Come before His presence. Verse number 3. Know. That's also told for us to do. Know that the Lord is God. Also in verse number 4. Enter. There's a call for that. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving. We have be thankful. Also telling us to be thankful unto Him. And blessing Him. Blessing His name. Those are the seven things that just kind of pop off. If you're, if you're doing a study on what are we supposed to be doing? There's joyful noise, serving, coming, knowing, entering, being thankful, and blessing Him. Also, there's a, a singular attention given in this particular psalm as it keeps referencing one individual. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Verse number 2, serve the Lord. Come where? Before His presence. Verse 3, the Lord, He is God. He made us. 
We are His people. We belong to Him. We are His pasture. The sheep of His pasture. He owns the sheep. He owns the pasture. It's His gates we enter. It's His courts where we praise. We're thankful to Him. We bless His name. Because the Lord is good, and it's His mercy, and it's His truth. And you could do a study like that, and boy, you're, you've got a lot to cover right there alone. Every, every one of those phrases can keep us occupied for the next several minutes, no doubt about that. And since I like to do uh, this chapter almost every single year at this time, uh, I've got enough material here to last 20 more years. If I just take it piece by piece, that is a lot of material to cover. So, um, probably next Thanksgiving we'll be in Psalm 100. Just put a bookmark there, we'll be back. All right, but let's look at verse 5 today. Let's, let's give some emphasis here, and I think you're going to uh, find this to be very interesting. Uh, the Lord is good. Good. Is that not a word that's somewhat overused in our day and age? good. Oh, it's good. It's all good. Have you heard that too? There's a lot of good being used around. There are two statements in this psalm speaking directly about the identity of our God. And the first one is, the Lord is God, and now the Lord is good. We have two identifying marks in this psalm, verse 3 and verse 5. The Lord is God, the Lord is good. So let's look at this phrase, the Lord is Good. Let's examine it very closely. You ready? This is fun. The first word we want to discuss is the word Lord. Lord. It's also, if your translation might be a little bit different, you might have a word like Jehovah. Or if you have a, one of the even more brand new translations that have been coming out lately, you might see the word Yahweh. You say, okay, uh, Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the New American Standard Version. If you're reading that tonight, you'll see Lord in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That, that's a very interesting thing that they've done. You'll notice it in verse 1, 2, 3, even in verse 5, it's spelled that way. And what that is, is something that translators have done to indicate to you that that word Lord is the word Jehovah. It is the word Yahweh in the Hebrew text. And they wanted to emphasize that. And I'll tell you a little story how that came about. Um, typically in our English translation, whether you've got a King James or one of the others, you see the word Lord there. We're accustomed to that. We lived with that. We've always seen that, really. Uh, growing up, we've always seen that word Lord in our text. Back in the early 1900s, around 1901, uh, there was a group just prior to that in the late 1800s and moving into 1901, there was a group of uh, uh, international scholars. Most of them were overseas in the land of England. And then there were some Americans also among them who were translating the scriptures, making a new translation. They called it the Revised Version back in the 1880s. And the Americans were helping out with that translation. Uh, and so 
they were concerned that the uh, British government was only, or that publisher was only going to let that be published in their country. And the Americans thought, well, why can't we have it in our country too? And the deal was made that if you let it just go into publication here in about 10 years, we'll let you publish it in your country too. And that was the most that they actually took. Everything the Americans had contributed to the translation, they said, oh, that's kind of nice, and they put it to the side. Well, the Americans wanted to put their stuff in it. And so when they got a chance in the early 1900s to publish it, they called it the American Standard Version instead of Revised Standard Version. And when they did that, they thought, we need to make something unique here, and they put in the word Jehovah instead of the word L-O-R-D in capital letters. They said, that's how we're going to mark it. All the way through, we're going to just write Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. Well, wouldn't you know a, a, a particular cult got a hold of that one and liked it a lot. And uh, they emphasized the word Jehovah. And they said, oh, so what do we do? Well, many years later, a new American, new American Standard Version came out. And the new American Standard Version said, well, we're not going to keep the word Lord as Jehovah, so we're going to put it in all caps so you could see that that's what that word was. And so they did that in the new American Standard Version, and that's what I read from tonight. Which is very interesting, because in the family line, a new translation has just come out this year. It's called the Legacy Standard Version. Legacy Standard, made by the same publishers who made the New American Standard Version, the Lachman Foundation. And the Legacy Standard Bible really is a New American Standard Version with particular change. They said, why don't we put the word Yahweh in there now? So this is how their, their whole family line, their tree has been changing over years. And so... In the future, you're probably going to hear people reading from their scriptures and the word Yahweh popping up all the time. And when you see that, say, oh, they got the Legacy Standard Bible. That's what they're reading from because they decided they liked it that way. Now, if you want to say, well, what's the difference? Really, there isn't. If you write down these words, and some of you take notes, and maybe this would be a good exercise for a minute, but write the word Jehovah right across the top, J-E-H-O-V-A-H, or visualize it if you're not going to write it. Uh, you got the word Jehovah in your mind. Now, underneath it, write the word Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H. Now, let's start ripping out all the vowels, because Hebrew doesn't use vowels. They have points and dots and things like that. But originally, they didn't have any vowels at all. So we're taking E's and O's and A's and E's, you know, all these. Just take them out of both words. And what you have left on the top is J-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. All right? Now, when you see those letters, you say, okay, what's, what's that now? Hebrew does not have a J. That's a good old way of English putting their, their letter in a place of what they call a yod, which generally looks more like a Y, or sounds like a Y, but English people put J. So you have Jehovah, you have Joshua, you have Josiah, and all of those are actually starting with the Y in the Hebrew letters. So the, the yod and, or the Y and the J are practically, they're the same letter. The V and the W are also the same letter. 
It's a vav in Hebrew. And so some people call it wav, and some people call it vav. All right? And it's always fun to work with that because it, it changes the funny sounds when you're making the words. But it's the same letter, too. And, of course, all the H's are the same. And so what you have and what you're looking at is a word that goes Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, whichever one you prefer, which is the four Hebrew letters of the name Jehovah. Both of them are like that. And what's very interesting is that when they pronounced the word, they couldn't say it. It was too holy to say. They couldn't write it with a pen that's been used before. And just imagine how many times it appears in Scripture. The scribes who were writing it would write up to that word. They'd go out and get a new quill. They'd come in, just write that word, get rid of that quill, go out and get another quill, and then finish the sentence. Imagine some of the passages where the Lord talks a lot. They are changing pens or quills all the time. And on top of that, since they, when they read it in public, they didn't want to say that name. It was too holy. They actually put the letters for Adonai underneath it. So that when they're reading along, they, they're saying, and the, the Lord Adonai said, instead of the Lord Jehovah said. And so they were very careful you know, I like the fact that they treated that name sacred. Our culture doesn't treat any of the names of Christ sacred, do they? They use them even for swear words. But uh, nevertheless, they treated it so special. But what was interesting about that is, with all that spelling I gave you in Hebrew lessons, uh, if you take the H and the Y and the H, you would have just the root word, which is a verb, and that means to exist. And that's what his name is all about. Remember, I am. That's his Hebrew designation. I am. The great I am. That's the way God wanted to be identified. And that's what's in the essence of the word Jehovah. The great I am is who he is. It's a present tense verb. Which is really kind of interesting because when you say it, it's like, I am and I always will be. It's a constant I am. On and on and on. He's always I am. And so I am and I always will be. And with that comes another thought as to his existence, his availability. He's never missing. So when you speak of him as I am, you're also realizing he's always will be and that he will be there for your need and that he will be there when you need. That's a pretty cool word. I enjoyed that one year in, in my Hebrew studies, and I said, boy, does that change a passage. <laughs> when you're going through it and realize that this God, this great I Am, who always is and always will be, is always there when you need Him, when you need Him. It's like, Powerful! That's his answer. How many times did he use that when he was talking to his people? They were slaves in Egypt for many years, right? What, how many years? 400? That's a long time to be in slavery. Generation after generation after generation. They got to the place where they didn't even know his name. There's a God out there, but we don't think he hears us. We don't think he cares. He, he left us a long time ago. We don't even know who he is. And so, so they said, we don't know him. 
And Moses says, what do I tell him? And he says, just tell him, I am. I've always been I am. But I am, and I always am. And I'm here with you. And that was a surprise to them. But they found out shortly he certainly was. That was a perfect name to give them at that time. But you could trace that all the way through the Old Testament passages. How many times, folks, do you read a passage of conflict? You read a passage of despair? You read a passage of suffering or defeat? And what do you find? Injustice or pain? You might read a passage on victory or relief or hope. And his name is in the passage over and over and over again. Every context, I am. Every conflict, I always am. Every trouble, I am here with you. I love that name. That's the first name we see in verse number 5 when we just studied those four little words. The Lord is good. Lord. You got the name? It's really an important name. We don't want to miss out on that because what with this psalm that is full the writer is full in his heart as he writes about the Lord Jehovah. So he picks up these words and he gets to verse 5 and he says, Now I've got to describe him to you. His name is enough, but let's put an adjective with it. The Lord is good. You say, oh, can't you do better? Good? How about the Lord is better? Wouldn't that be better? The Lord is best. Wouldn't that be the superlative? The Lord is good. The Lord is good. You, you'll find that whether you're reading a Hebrew Bible, an English Bible, or a Greek Old Testament Bible, it's the word good. And what's interesting, though, is that in the other translations, it's put before Jehovah's name. And it says, good is the Lord. In Greek and in Hebrew. Good is the Lord. What's that purpose? He wants you to see it. <laughs> he wants that adjective to pop off the page when you read it. He wants you to think about good and say, what does that mean? What does that mean to us? <laughs> like I said, it's overused a lot in our day and age. We, we, we say, I'm good, as if we say, don't worry about me. Right? Uh Sometimes we look at them and say, are you sure? <laughs> I mean, their arms laying on the ground. I'm good. <laughs> no, you're not. But that's what we say. I'm good. You know, don't worry about me. They look hurt, but you don't really believe them when they say, I'm good. Um, I, I hear it so often, the phrase, it's all good. And I stop and say, I don't think it is. <laughs> Maybe that's just my realist side or something. I say, no, really? Well, I had to look it up. All right, Google's our good source here. It means, informally, used to say that a situation is good or acceptable, that there is not a problem. Don't worry about it, man. It's all good. That's quoted from Google, just so you know. We were talking at dinner tonight about uh, a, a meal that Megan had, and they're trying to get me to describe what I thought of it. I said it was good. And uh, they wanted more than that. They wanted, is it great? Where is it? The scale was between 1 and 10. That was kind of fun. Um, is it great? Is it so good? We put that sometimes. Is it the best? 
Is this satisfactory? Now, remember, maybe you were taught this when you were a kid. What was the mealtime prayer? God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. You know the rest of it? <laughs> By His blessings we are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Yes. That's kind of fun. There was a, a Bible camp we used to go to, and I was part of the pastoral staff. And uh, many times before the meals, they would ask one of us to lead in the prayer. And so I got up there because they asked me one lunchtime to lead in the prayer for the, the summer camp kids. And I said, God, you are great. You are good. And my pastor friend next to me said, <gasps> he said, oh, he's going to say that prayer. I said, no, I, it was just the way I wanted to start it. <laughs> he was great. He was good. And he thought it was coming with the rest of the poem. Um, that little word, good, it's an easy word to say, but it has so much meaning. Are you ready for this? This is what I want you to get the essence of here tonight. Our God who is here and always here and he's here when we need him is good. And let me describe it for you just starting with the Hebrew definition of a word called tob. Tob. That's the word for good. In its widest sense it can be used for a good thing or a good man or a good woman or goods or good things or good men or good women. It could mean well, it could mean beautiful, or best, or better, or bountiful, or cheerful, or at ease, or fair, or favor, or fine, or glad, or graciously. Now, I'm only halfway through the list. Hang in there. But in, it's interesting, in 1535, when William, um, no, when, when William, William Covendale, I think it was William, just, Miles, Miles Coverdale. Uh, Coverdale. Miles Coverdale was t working on the translation of the Old Testament into English. And that later went to the Matthews Bible in 1549, the Bishop's Bible in 1568. They said, the Lord is gracious in their translation. That's what everyone was reading in the 1500s. For the first time they saw it in English, for many of them. The Lord is gracious. Well, that's one of those words. And then it went joyful, kindly, kindness, loving, merry. He never put it that way, do we? The Lord is merry. Um, pleasant, pleaseth, pleasure, precious, prosperity, ready, sweet. That made me stop again. Said, the Lord is sweet? That just sounds funny because people use that word today too, don't they? It's supposed to, I guess, represent something good. Uh, that's sweet. John Wycliffe used it in his translation in 1390. He said, the Lord is sweet. Isn't that funny? I said, ooh, that's interesting. Where did he get that word? He actually got it from the Latin, and the Latin word is the word for sweet. And so that's what John Wycliffe used. And then the Catholic translation of 1899, the, the Douay Reims translation, has the word sweet in it too. The Lord is sweet. 
I thought, well, that's an interesting choice of words. You have also the words wealth and welfare and be well and be well favored and agreeable and excellent and becoming and glad and happy. So why did they pick the word good when they had all these options? Good came into the English translations in 1587, and they've been here ever since. The word good has been on our page all the way back from the Geneva Bible of 1587. The Lord is good, and most translations carry with that word good. But I really like this. The Living Bible, when it was translated years ago, added one more thought, and it's perfect. The Lord is always good. And he is always loving and kind. And his faithfulness goes on and on to each succeeding generation. I like that little word always. It gives it kind of the heart of the concept. He's always, always good. So let me take you one step further with the word, okay? Just having fun with you a little tonight. If I were to go to the Old Testament, read it from the Greek translation, I'd find another word here. Krestos. Krestos. It's the same word that you find in the fruit of the Spirit and other places in the New Testament, usually translated as kind. Kind. But what's interesting about this word, it actually means employed. Now you're going to look at it funny. The Lord is employed? Well, you wouldn't want him to be jobless, would you? But the, no, the Lord is, no, that doesn't sound right. But here's where it keeps on going. Useful. And actually, in its very deepest root, he furnishes what is needed. And I said, oh, now I found something interesting to work with. He furnishes what is needed. The Lord, who's always there, whenever you need him, Wherever you need him, furnishes what you need. Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody not only with you when you have trouble, but somebody who can do something about it? That's the picture. That's what the Word brings to the, the thoughts that goes with it, and how it fits perfectly with His name. He's not only with you, but He furnishes with you the things that you need. I am and always will be. I am and always will be for what you need, when you need it. I will furnish what is needed. I will furnish what is needed. Enter into his gates, is said in verse number 4, with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for this reason. Why? Why should I... Be grateful. Why should I be praising Him? Why should I be thankful? Why should I be blessing His name? For the Lord is good. He has furnished what you needed. I'm going to read to you a couple of things here. And I'll start with this. It's a, it's a little passage from Matthew Henry. You heard the name before? You ever read his commentaries? I bet nobody in here has read all of, all of them all the way through. <laughs> They're big. <laughs> They're a big volume. Well, most people say, well, yeah, he's, he's kind of flowery. And, uh, and he, sometimes you're reading and you say, 
I have no idea where he just went. <laughs> it's just, it just goes on and on and on. And you say, what, what's, what's with this guy? Well, let me tell you his story for a minute. And then you think about his commentary again. He was born in 1662. Did you know that long ago? That's when he was born. He lived to be to 1714. He was known for his massive volumes of commentary on the Bible. And we say, okay, well, he had a lot of spare time, huh? Or something. Well, he was, to start with, or tell you his story, he was prematurely born, and the issues with that birth stayed with him his whole life. He was known to have frequent fevers throughout his life. It was something that just followed him everywhere he went. His father was a nonconformist preacher in England. You know what those folks were? They were different. <laughs> they, they were different, and it wasn't easy to be different in that day, but they didn't want to conform to the government's churches. They didn't want to do it the way the government had set up with the Church of England. Um, so they violated a law called the Act of Uniformity of 1662. That was when Matthew Henry was born. His father had joined with the rest, and they were by law restricted from many of the spheres of public life. They did not have access to public offices, civil service careers at all, degrees from university, and many of them ended up getting arrested because they were doing ministry, and it wasn't legal for them to do that. That was his father. And Matthew Henry decided to follow in the footsteps of his father. He went to school to study law and changed his mind and said, no, I want to go into ministry. I want to be a nonconformist pastor as well. He got married at the age of 25. His wife gave birth to a baby girl, and then she died, his wife died of smallpox. The baby died 15 months later. He married again. This time, he had three more children by his second wife, and the first three died at birth. They would go on to have six more children who will live to be adults. He was busy with church work. He was educating believers. He was writing long commentaries. <laughs> he began to suffer from inflammations, uh, inflammation to his kidneys. At the age of 51, he was traveling on horseback to one of his speaking engagements and was thrown off the horse. He, he got up and said, it's all good. <laughs> Well, maybe, but he convinced them that he was he was feeling just fine, and he wanted to go on to the to the destination where he was supposed to speak, but he couldn't finish the journey. He was dead in the morning. They said it was a stroke, blood clots, something I don't know. Kind of gives you a little appreciation for a man who wrote so much. He only lived 51 years, and those were tough years. Those were hard years to, war to live through. And yet when he's writing in his commentaries, he's not writing, woe is me, woe is me, how hard my life is. 
But have you ever, if you've read through it, have you ever noticed how he keeps focusing on the Lord? And he does get flowery because he loves to talk about his Lord. He loves it. And that's why his words are what they are. They're an expression of his heart. And when he comes to this passage, and I wanted to give you that preface so you get the feel for how he's saying these words. Um, he says, you need to know God as himself and what he is to you. Know it, he says. Consider and apply it, and then you will be more close and constant, more inward and serious in the worship of him. Let us know that these seven things concern our Lord Jehovah. Know, first of all, that He, the Lord, He is God. He's the only one living and true God. He is the being infinitely perfect, self-existent, self-sufficient, and the fountain of all being. He is God and not a man as we are. He is an eternal spirit, incomprehensible and independent, the first cause and the last end. Know that He is our Creator. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. He gave us being. He gave us this being. He is both the former of our, the former of our bodies and the Father of our spirits. We did not, we could not make ourselves. Know that therefore He is our rightful owner. We learn that because God made us, and not we ourselves. Therefore we are not our own, but His. He has an incontestable right to and property in us and all things. His we are to be actuated by His powers, disposed of by His will, and devoted to His honor and glory. Know that He is our sovereign ruler. We are His people or subjects, and He is our prince, our rector, our governor, that gives law to us as moral agents and will call us to account for what we do. The Lord is our judge, and the Lord is our lawgiver. We are not at liberty to do uh, what we will, but we must always make conscience of doing, we, we must always make conscience of doing as we are bidden. Know that He is our bountiful benefactor. We are not only His sheep, who He is entitled to, but the sheep of His pasture, whom he takes care of, the flock of his feeding, so that we may read, therefore, the sheep of his hand at the disposal at his disposal, because the sheep of his pasture he has made us maintain he that made us maintains us and gives us all good things richly to enjoy. Know that he is a God of infinite mercy and goodness. The Lord is good and therefore does good. His mercy is everlasting. It is a fountain that can never be drawn dry. The saints who are now the sanctified vessels of mercy will be to eternity the glorified monuments of mercy. Know that He is a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness. His truth endures to all generations and no word of His shall fall to the ground as antiquated or revoked. The promise is sure from age to age. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But his focus, the Lord, how good he's been to us. Providing exactly what we needed. Furnishing it all along the way. Just stop and think about that for a few minutes. 
Why would he even care? One of the first things we learn about ourselves when we get into Scripture, it doesn't take long. Chapter 3 of the very first book, we're sinful. Boy, it's right there in front of us. And all the way through, page after page after page, it talks about our sinfulness. And you say, Lord, why would you even care? Why would you even furnish us with what we need? And then I read these verses. Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. There's the first reference you have to good in the Psalms. And guess what it's talking about? Yeah, He knows you're a sinner. (laughs) He's there to instruct you. He's to help you along the way. We need righteousness. We need fair justice. We know that. And in Psalm 33, verse 5, He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Sometimes that seems to be overshadowed by news events, doesn't it? Oh no, he hasn't changed because he's good and he's here and he's always good. The world might distort things like that. But he is our security. He's our help. In the time of need and trouble. A place where we could put our trust. Oh, taste and see, Psalm 34 starts in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Do you know even a little prophet by the name of Nahum? Most people say, is there one? Yeah. There's a book called Nahum in there. It's in the Minor Prophets. You can pass by it very quickly and say, I don't know anything about Nahum. Well, Nahum had something to say about the Lord, and guess what he said? He said in Nahum 1-7, the Lord is good. Pops out right on the page in the middle of a, of a judgment passage. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Think of your salvation. Your salvation. Is it precious to you? Aren't you glad the Lord did that? You know what? That's a sign of His goodness to you. He furnished you with something you need. Oh, He knew what you needed. But He furnished what you needed. He didn't just leave you there without any hope. Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now, remember I used that word kindness. It's also the same Greek word as goodness. And the King James brings that out and says, The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. He knew you needed help. He knew you couldn't have made it yourself. And His goodness led you. Led you to a cross. Led you to the understanding of what Jesus has done. Led you to the place of faith. Led you to a new life with Him. Led you to a place where you have a new name. You are a child of God. You belong to Him. You have been forgiven. He led you to that. He furnished you with that. He has given you this life and the life to come. Isn't that the promise? He's furnished you with that. Isn't He good? He's given to you the Holy Spirit to help you live this day. And the days throughout your Christian life, He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given you the Word of God to study. He's been furnishing, furnishing, furnishing us. He's good. You see it? 
All the time he just keeps giving and giving and giving and giving. Everything that needs to be furnished, he's there to furnish it for us. I find that rather incredible. Because when you say, he is God, when you say, he is God, we think, oh, we've come to worship him. He's so big and we're so little. And he's our creator. And he's so magnificent. And we just, we're like small things in His presence. And we come before Him and say, He's God. And then we say, yeah, He's good. What's interesting to me about all that is what Jesus portrayed to us so clearly. He didn't come to be served, but to do what? To serve. That's in that Word. He's useful to us. He's serving us. He's furnishing. He's furnishing. And it just... Wow, I get excited about it. Just thinking. This is God? And He's aiming that kindness toward me? And that's what you find when you study through the Scriptures and follow His name. He gives and gives and gives and gives and gives again. I just love it. I just love it. Albert Barnes in his commentary said this of this passage, For good is Yahweh. That is, He is not a being of mere power. He is not merely the Creator, but He is benevolent. And He is therefore worthy of universal praise. In the former verses, He, cla- he claims to adoration. It's founded in the fact that He is a Creator and has as such a right to our service. In this verse, verse number 5, the claim is asserted on account of His moral character, His benevolence, His mercy, His truth. He gives and gives and gives. The Lord is good. We see His benevolence. The Lord is good. And because we study that through, we think of how good He's been to us. He's worthy of praise, isn't He? That's why we thank Him when we go into the gates. He could have just been a God of power. Could have just presented Himself as a God of power. But how would we have ever loved Him? How would we have ever praised Him? His power... And His treatment of us. How they go so get together so beautifully. So united. God is good. His benevolence brings us to a place where we respond. When people give you things, you're taught to say, thank you. That's what the psalmist is saying. Thank you, Lord, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. So we come to Him in thankfulness here. Not just for who He is, but for what He's done as well. He has furnished us with what we need. Now, I could go on and on, and I don't intend to. Our hour is almost up anyway. Examples are everywhere. But I'm going to leave you with a little assignment. Always need a Thanksgiving assignment, though, right? Here it is. More than just saying, what am I thankful for? Because we do that all the time. We go around the table. What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? We, we all express it. Let's rephrase it a little bit and say, what has the Lord furnished you with that makes you thankful? What has the Lord furnished you with that makes you thankful? 
Because now it's not just what it is that I have in my hand, but now you're thinking about who it is that gave it to me. Put that in your thoughts this week. I'm going to leave a blank right there for you to fill in. We just go forth and fill in the blanks. What is it that the Lord has furnished you that makes you thankful? And if you run out of things or thoughts, just start any chapter you want in this book. You're bound to find lots of answers to fill in that blank. The Lord is good. I think you'd agree, wouldn't you? What an amazing God we have. There's our little thought from Psalm 100 tonight. 100, verse number 5. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. What a joy it is that this generation we live in, it's still true. And we pass it on to our kids. And guess what? It's still true. And then we pass it on to our grandkids. And guess what? It's still true. Because we have a good God. Heavenly Father, thank you for these things. Thank you for your love for us expressed in your goodness. How you have turned your attention to us and showered us with everything we need for life and godliness. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's in your character and your nature. It's in your word. It says so. I believe all that. But it's still an amazing thing to me that you are so good to us. And I thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you for furnishing us with all that we need. And we will be quick to give you thanks. Because we know why we're giving you thanks. And we praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.